How do you deal with sin? Welcome to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr., author and pastor teacher at Shiloh Church in Jacksonville and Orange Park, Florida. In today's culture, the church is pulled in every direction. What was wrong yesterday is okay today. Today's text out of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Pastor Charles will show us how God views sin. Today's message, how God deals with sinners. And now, here's Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. I would like to talk today about how God deals with sinners from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. In the English Standard Version of the Bible, the reading is this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. How God deals with sinners. Over the past years, we have been repeatedly told that gay rights represents the civil rights battle of our generation. Several weeks ago, a famous Olympic hero made a cultural splash by a front page magazine spread where he said in caption under the picture, call me Caitlin. And just last week, the Supreme Court of the United States of America rendered a verdict legalizing same-sex marriage in all 50 states. What are Christians to make of this? What are Christians to think about this? How are Christians to respond to this? First and foremost, it must be said that our response as Christians to the cultural matters of the day must not be shaped by culture, opinion, tradition, verdicts, or anything like that. The Word of God must be the foundation upon which we stand. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 is still true. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. And so we must seek to understand the changes of our times in light of the word of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 through 11 is a great representative passage for us to consider in terms of how God deals with sinners. I was in a bookstore some time ago and my attention was attracted by a book that was entitled 20 Controversies That Almost Killed a Church. I bought the book just for the title and was even more eager to discover upon perusing it that it was a book that is basically an exposition of the letter we know as 1 Corinthians. Indeed, 1 Corinthians is written to the most troubled, worldly, and divided church in the New Testament. Multiple controversies almost killed this church. Chapter 6 of the letter, verses 1 through 8, Paul addresses one such controversy. Members of the church were settling legal disputes by suing one another in worldly courts. This was bringing dishonor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Paul gives them two Christian alternatives. First, he suggests that there should be godly, mature people in the church who can settle the dispute without you having to take it to worldly courts. Secondly, if there are not mature people in the church that can make godly decisions in these matters, Paul boldly says it is better to be defrauded than to dishonor the name of Christ by going to court with your brother in Christ. Of course, that's a hard pill for the readers to swallow, as no doubt it would be for us today to hear. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul addresses this practical matter with theological truth. That's important. You live out the Christian faith in light of doctrinal convictions. What you believe ought to shape what you do. And here Paul lifts the discussion beyond lawsuits to discuss with us how God deals with sinners, how God determines righteousness and unrighteousness, who God says will get into the kingdom and who God says is excluded from his kingdom. This passage teaches us bad news and good news about how God deals with sinners. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is this. God condemns unrepentant sinners. God condemns unrepentant sinners. If you were to have a Christian conversation with a homosexual friend, what would you say? I contend that you cannot have a Christ-centered Bible-based, spiritually helpful conversation with a homosexual friend without that conversation resting on this foundational truth. The Word of God calls homosexuality 
a sin. President Abraham Lincoln once asked, if you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs does the dog have? Answer, four. Calling a tail a leg will not make it a leg. And friends, you can try to redefine sin any way you want to. The Bible calls sin what it is. And it is clear in the word of God that homosexuality is a sin. And as it relates to sin, the Bible here says God condemns unrepentant sinners. First in the eighth part of verse 9, Paul declares that God condemns the character of the unrighteous. God condemns the character of the unrighteous. Verse 9 says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? This is the third of three questions in this chapter where Paul begins rhetorically by saying, do you not know? The beginning of verse 2, he says, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3 begins, do you not know that we are to judge angels? Now, verse 9, he says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wicked people will not inherit the kingdom of God. While we want to blur the lines between good and evil, truth and error, right and wrong, here again, Paul draws the line clearly. There is a distinction between righteousness and unrighteousness. People often say, I'm spiritual, just not religious as if that's some virtuous thing. The Bible never tells us to be spiritual. Spirituality is not something you do. It is what we are. We are all spirit persons who live in bodies of flesh. And after these bodies of flesh die, the spirit person will still live on. Being spiritual is not what you do, it is inevitably what you are. We are all spirit beings, and every one of us as spiritual beings will spend eternity somewhere. The Bible does not tell us to be spiritual. The Bible does command us to be righteous. That's our problem. Righteousness is conformity to the revealed will of God. It is submission to the authority of God. It is obedience to the government of God. It is a life that lives up to God's standards. And Paul says here, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous. That's those who live in blatant rebellion against the standards of God. When he speaks here about righteous and unrighteous, he is not talking about being perfect or imperfect. Unless your name is the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not perfect. But the fact that nobody is perfect is not a license for you to live any way you want to. 
God is not looking for perfection from your life. God is looking at the direction of your life. If you are right with God, you aren't perfect, but you ought to be headed in the right direction. When I was a young pastor in my first church, group rose up on me to put me out the church. I grew up in that church. They were going to put me out. And I was depressed. I was in bed for days, couldn't get out of bed. I, I found out real young and early that you got a whole lot of friends when folks think you got it going on. And then when trouble comes, all the folk you thought you could count on, you don't find them anywhere. But finally, the phone rang, and it was... <laughs> <laughs> it was a pastoral colleague who reached out to say, hey, HB, I was calling when things were going well, and I need to call now that things are going rough. He said, man, you're just trying to do God's will in that church, man, and some of this was inevitable. Hang in there. God is with you. He'll see you through. I said, man, I appreciate that, but what you need to know is I haven't been perfect. Some of the things I responded to wrongly because I let my ego get in the way. I just wasn't going to let them treat me like that. And maybe my ego got me into some of this. He said, HB, be encouraged. Go back and read Matthew 6, verse 33. He said, for the Lord to take care of you. He didn't say you had to be all the way in the kingdom. He said, you just got to seek the kingdom first and his righteousness and he'll take care of everything else. And in a real sense, this is what you need to understand about the terms righteous and unrighteous as they are used in this discussion. When we speak of righteous people, we are not talking about perfect people. Only Jesus is perfect. But if you are righteous, you will be seeking as the priority of your life to live in a way that is pleasing to God. Unrighteous people are people who say, I don't care what the Bible says, I'm going to do what I want to do. And he says those people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. The word inherit means to lay your hands on, to possess. You do know that just because your name is in the wheel doesn't mean you'll get anything in the end. And he's saying there is a difference between said faith and real faith. There is a difference between the profession of faith and the possession of faith. Or as the old folk used to say, everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. He says just because you claim to be right with God does not mean you will inherit the kingdom. The, the, the issue is not what you say about God now, it's about what God says about you at the end. My first semester at Los Angeles High School, I had some interesting, strange personalities as teachers. I had some yelling teachers and some write you up, send you to the principal, dean, counselor, office teachers. And so quickly, my favorite teacher was my first period teacher, my first period English teacher. She didn't fuss. She didn't write nobody up. None of that. 
If you didn't turn in your homework, she never said a word. We, we thought that was cool. We would come late the first period, and she wouldn't say a word. She didn't ask, well, where have you been? We got so relaxed, we started picking up McDonald's on the way to class. And we would just eat McDonald's while she was teaching. She never said a word until report cards came out. And though she did not say a word, she didn't yell and scream and kick you out of class, but she was marking it all down. And friend, just because God is not saying anything about the wickedness of our time does not mean he does not see what is going on. God is marking it all down. And the Bible says, do you not know? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. God condemns the character of the unrighteous. But then the verse moves on, verse 9, to say God also condemns the conduct of the unrighteous. The B part of verse 9 says, do not be deceived. The word means deceived means to stray away from truth, virtue, or safety. Watch the tension of the text. First sentence, verse 9, do you not know? Question, now a warning, don't be deceived. Don't stray away from the truth. What truth? He says, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will, same language as the beginning of verse 9, inherit the kingdom of God. The tension of the text is that first he condemns the character of the unrighteous, and now he addresses the conduct that characterizes the unrighteous. This catalog of vices lists 10 vices in the original. If you're reading the ESV as I am, the list of 10 is condensed to nine. I'll explain that in just a moment. But this list of vices is divided into two big categories. One category in verse 9, the other category in verse 10. In verse 9, Paul condemns sexual sins. In verse 10, Paul condemns social sins. Let me start with the latter. In verse 10, he condemns social sins, saying the thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But first, in the place of emphasis, he condemns sexual sin. And listen to what he says in verse 9. He says, first of all, sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Older translations render that fornicators. It is premarital sex, sex that is outside of the covenant of marriage. Interestingly, after the sexually immoral, he mentions idolaters. And it may be strange that idolatry is mixed in here in the list of sexual sins, but not in the culture of Paul's day. Corinth was a wicked city that was metaphorical for 
It's immorality. To call a person a prostitute by slang was to call them a Corinthian. In Corinth, there was the temple of Epaphrodite, where there were a thousand servants in that temple, a thousand slaves who the only way to rightly describe them would be to call them temple prostitutes. They perform sexual favors as religious in, uh, expression. And by listing idolaters here, he is condemning people who engage in sexual sin and act like God is all right with it. He says, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, neither will adulterers. This response to the sexually immoral, this is extramarital sex, those who cheat on their spouses, nor men who practice homosexuality. There are actually two Greek terms here. The first term refers to the passive partner in a homosexual relationship. The other refers to the active partner in a homosexual relationship. And Paul um, in the ESV here, they just merge the terms and use this phrase, men who practice homosexuality. From this, we can conclude several things quickly. First, Paul is clear and unapologetic in describing homosexual activity as sin. And this is no isolated statement. Scripture consistently describes homosexual behavior as sin. In Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, Moses says that a man who lays with a man as with a woman is, is a detestable thing. It's an abomination before God is the language. And later in Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, Paul issues the death penalty for those who are found guilty of of laying with a man as with a woman. You say, well, H.B., that's just the Old Testament law. And then some even say, well, if you're going to quote the Old Testament, what about all those other laws we don't keep? But you need to note that there are two kinds of laws in the Old Testament. There are moral laws and ceremonial laws. There are God's Forever moral standards, and then there were ceremonial laws that were specific to Israel. How do you know the difference between the two? When it's a moral law, you'll find it repeated in the New Testament. And when you get to the New Testament, it is still clear that homosexuality is a sin. We see it here in our text. We see it in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where Paul broadens it out to speak of men who sleep with men and women who sleep with women, more broadly applying this to, to homosexuality, lesbianism, to transvestites. Any homosexuality, any homosexual behavior is condemned by the Word of God. Homosexuality, its behavior is a sin. But let me add this. If you're taking notes, write this down too. It is not the only sin. Listen, 
If there's anything worse than a church that won't condemn any sins, is a church that only condemns selective sins. That, that's hypocrisy. And if you're going to condemn, you need to just tell the truth about it all. And, and the truth about it is, if you read verse 9, you got to condemn fornicators and adulterers before you get to homosexuals. All day, I've been wishing I had a tape recorder with amens on it that I could just push when I needed it in the course of this sermon. Starting to feel that again right about now. And the young people are looking like, what's a tape recorder? (laughs) (laughs) It is not the only sin. While we must say that homosexuality is wrong, we need to also be prepared to say as a church that adultery is wrong. And fornication is wrong. Well, all you preachers, all y'all know to do is fuss about sex. Just preoccupy, well, well, keep reading in the verse 10. It's stuff that ain't got nothing to do with sex that'll keep you out the kingdom too. Thieves won't inherit the kingdom. That's behavior. Now he, he says... There's not just a sin of behavior. Watch this sin of attitude. Greedy people, covetous people, materialistic people will not inherit the kingdom. From the sin of attitude, he moves to the sin of excess. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom. And then from a sin of excess, he moves to a sin of speech. Revilers will not inherit the kingdom. Um, A reviler is a person guilty of hate speech. It is a person that tries to destroy others with words. If your life is characterized by verbal abuse, he says you won't get into the kingdom either. Swindlers, extortioners, hustlers. He says you won't inherit the kingdom Either homosexuality is a sin, but it's not the only sin. It's not even the worst sin. Be careful when you start categorizing. Here, Paul says that being greedy is just as bad as being homosexual. It's not the worst sin, but... It is a big sin. I don't have time, and that's no pulpit excuse for poor exposition. I don't have time to walk you through the next part of this passage. It is in verses 12 through 20. I would encourage you to read it for yourself. And there Paul bids the church to flee all sexual immorality, all of it. Let me tell you why you need to flee all of it. Because if you are saved, friend, it means God the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you must flee all sexual sin. Listen to me. 
If you are saved, then the Lord Jesus lives in you. And if the Lord Jesus lives in you, whatever you do in your body, you are forcing him to participate in. Paul will say here, would Christ lay with a prostitute? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. So he condemns those who sleep with prostitutes. If Christ lives in you, you must flee all sexual sin. Look at verses 19 and 20. For do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Look at the end of verse 19. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So you should glorify God in your body. He says all of these wicked things, the whole list. If your life is characterized by any of this, he says you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And would you note here that the emphasis is on behavior, not orientation. Those who claim, well, God made me this way or I was born with a certain orientation. Listen, that's the word iniquity. It means bent or twisted. Everybody is perverted towards some sin. Every one of us got a virus in our software that makes our hardware malfunction. And my malfunction may not be your malfunction, but all of us are predisposed to some sin. Heterosexual is predisposed to lust and fornication and adultery, but those two are sins condemned by God. In fact, not just the behavior but entertaining a desire for behavior that is displeasing to God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, he says that if you sleep with a woman that is not your wife, it is adultery. But if you look at a woman with lustful intention, you have already committed adultery with her where? In your heart. God says not only be careful of behavior, be careful of any desire. Guard your heart from desire that does not line up with my will. Orientation is not an excuse for sinful behavior. Martin Luther said it well, that I can't stop the birds from flying over my head, but I can't stop them from making a nest in my hair. If your life is characterized by these things, he says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Listen to me. Jesus says, On that day there will be many, what a disturbing word, not a few, but many, who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name and perform many wonders in your name. And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Listen to me. If you can be a preacher and miss the kingdom, 
What makes you think that you can live in a lifestyle that is rebellion against the Word of God and God approves that lifestyle? Paul is saying, nobody is perfect, but if your life is characterized by those things that God condemns, you need to truly ask yourself, am I really saved? Because God condemns unrepentant sinners. That's bad news. But I can't send you home with bad news. Can I give you some good news? I still got one more verse. You got time? The bad news is God condemns unrepentant sinners. The good news is God converts repentant sinners. Amen. O.S. Hawkins writes of preaching at Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and as he walked from his hotel to the school, he faced that Chicago hawk. Have you ever been in Chicago and that wind started blowing? He said it was like a wall slapping up against him as he tried and strained and struggled to press forward. It was like a wall resisting him at every step. But as he journeyed to the school, he remembered that he left something in his room. So he turned around to go back to get it before he went to the service. And he said the same wind that was blocking him when he turned around was propelling him. This is how God deals with sinners. If you live in rebellion against God, God will block you every step of the way. But if you make a U-turn and start going God's way, He will propel you so that your life will be pleasing to Him. Verse 9 and 10 record the bad news of sin. Verse 11 records the good news of salvation. Uh, verse 9 and 10 declares God's righteous standard. Verse 11 affirms God's transforming grace. Verse 9 and 10 declares God condemns unrighteous sinners. Verse 11 declares God converts righteous uh, repentant sinners. Two pieces of good news in verse 11. Here's the first. God loves you enough to meet you right where you are. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to change to come to Him. You don't have to fix yourself before you come to Him. You don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Him. If you could fix yourself before you come to him, you don't need to come to him. The reason why you need to come to Jesus is that there's things wrong with us that can't be fixed until his grace changes our hearts. The good news is God loves you enough to meet you right where you are. Look at the A part of verse 11. No, 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 no. Look back again at verse 9 and 10. Sexually immoral idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, revilers, drunkards, swindlers. None of them 
will inherit the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 11. And such were some of you. Some of you were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexualities, thieves, greedy, swindlers, drunkards, revilers. Such was some of you. The church must hold up a standard of righteousness, but as you do so, Paul is saying here, don't forget. Get what you were before grace gripped you. Don't get so righteous that you become pharisaical. And in the process, forget what God saved you from. While you are sticking your nose up at other people, Paul says, remember some of you were doing the same thing. Before God saves you. Oh, I see why some of y'all are sitting so cool. You, you, you say, well, I, this stuff on the list, that, that wasn't me. But that's okay, because this list is just representative, not exhaustive. This ain't the complete list, but as you read this list, if your heart is soft, the Holy Spirit has already tapped you on your shoulder and reminded you that yours ain't on this list, but you an X something. Hello? If God saved you, you are an X something. You were in sin that you could not get out of, but grace picked you up, cleaned you off, and gave you another chance. And in light of the fact that such were some of you, the church ought to be merciful toward those who are still in sin. Hear me. By God's help, this will not be a church that lowers the standard of righteousness. Wait, hold on. But also, by God's help, this will not be a church that is hateful toward people that are not like us. Now, that's where you're supposed to clap. You know what that means? It means you don't look down on people that show up that don't look like you, that don't talk like you, that don't act like you, that don't think like you. And instead of looking down at them, you need to look in the mirror and remember what God saved you from and say to yourself, if God can change me, he can change anybody. This is the good news we declare. You are not too bad for God to change your life. Am I right about that? Paul says, if any man be in Christ, 
He or she is a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. God loves you enough to meet you where you are. Listen to this. God loves you too much to let you stay there. Read Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. It's the parable of the prodigal son. When he came home from the far country, the Bible says that the father ran out to meet him. In the cultural world of the ancient Near East, rich men, older men, and men of status would never be caught running. But this father ran to his son because he would rather lose his dignity than lose his child. This is the heart of God. God loves you enough to meet you where you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay there. The father ran out to that boy and hugged him and kissed him in his pig filth, but he didn't let him stay there. He said, this is my son. Put a ring on his finger, put shoes on his feet, and put a new robe on his back. In fact, cut and kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a party to celebrate that my son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he has been found. God loves you too much to let you stay where you are. When circuses and zoos, unfortunately, when they train elephants from babies, they chain them with a little spike in the ground. Those Elephants grow into massive animals, but because they have big and great memories, they remain enclosed by these small chains with a spike in the ground. They have a memory of what they were that continues to bind them in the presence in spite of their potential for what they can be. Who am I talking to? The devil keeps reminding you of what you are. So what you were, that is, so that you remain bound in the presence and are failing to become what you can be. In a real sense, Paul says, next time the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. You have been changed by God and you don't have to be what you used to be. When you run to the cross, and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. When you repent of your sins and throw yourself on the mercy of God and trust the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ for salvation, three wonderful things happen. There in verse 11, you are cleansed by God. He washes you. If some scars and stains of sin in your life, you can't clean up but God can wash you. Is there a witness to that? But not only does God cleanse you, God will claim you. That's what the word sanctified means. It means to be made God's own possession for God's purpose. He takes you from the world and makes you his own. You are cleansed by God. You are claimed by God. And you are cleared by God. That is, you are justified. You stand one day before the throne of God with no 
fear because you don't have to stand based upon your own effort to be good. You stand clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When you trust in Jesus, your sin is put in his account and he pays for it at the cross and all of his righteousness is put in your account so that you can stand before God clothed in the blood of Jesus. If you're in Christ, you've been cleansed and sanctified and justified. How that happened? Let me tell you how it didn't happen. You didn't do it. How does it happen? Look at the text. You've been washed and you've been justified. You've been sanctified. Listen, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there a witness here that there's still power in the name of Jesus Christ? And by the Spirit of our God, you cannot change yourself, but there's nothing too hard for God. Bob, Bob woke up on Saturday morning, and his custom was to travel in this California neighborhood to check out the various garage sales. He did that this Saturday morning in particular. Couldn't find anything, but decided to make one more stop on his list. He did, and as he browsed about, he saw obscured in the back of a garage what was a motorcycle, not just a motorcycle, a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. It was a piece of junk, but it might as well have been pure gold to him. It was a Harley-Davidson motorcycle. He negotiated for that motorcycle and took it home for $35. He rode home overjoyed and scared at the same time, scared about what his wife was going to say when he pulled up with this big piece of junk. It took some time before he began to work on it, and before he started, he called up the parts department of the local Harley dealership to find out how much these various parts he needed would cost. They started asking questions, and the more questions they asked and he answered, the more formal the conversation began. And when they finally got the serial number and did a little bit of digging, they said, we need to call you back. He was nervous. I just want parts. What's going on here? He was concerned that maybe this bike was used in some crime or something. He finally got a call back, not from the parts department, but from the president of the dealership who wanted to confirm the serial number on the bike, which he did. Then he had more instructions. He told him to get a screwdriver and lift the seat off the bike and see if there's something under the seat of the bike. He did, and underneath the seat were inscribed these two words, the king. And... After hearing that, they ultimately offered Bob $250,000 for that bike he paid 35 bucks for. At that point, he told them, uh, I'm going to need to call you back. <laughs> <laughs> but before he could call them back, he got a call from Jay Leno, who was then host of The Tonight Show and collector of rare cars and motorcycles, and from his office, it is said he was received an offer for that $35 bike. They offered him half 
a million dollars for it. You may catch on by now that that motorcycle was a bike that belonged to the king, the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. In its condition, it was only worth $35. But because of its ownership, it was worth at least half a million dollars. I don't care what condition your life is, if the Lord has marked king on your heart, you are valuable to him. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchased by God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. I'm through, church. God be praised. Thanks for listening to Cutting It Straight with Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. If you would like more resources from Pastor Charles or to support this ministry, he can be reached online at www.hbcharlesjr.com. That's hbcharlesjr.com. Join us again for Cutting It Straight, and God bless.